0: If ancient astronauts did land here, what effect would they have had upon early Earthmen? Perhaps they were worshipped, feared, loved. Perhaps they brought gifts, a new world of knowledge, or simply the principle of the lever. If we accept the premise that beings from another civilization visited here ages ago, then some of the mysteries of our past take on a new and startling light. The Baghdad Museum in Iraq has on display a clay vase dating back before the birth of Christ. The vase is also a 2,000-year-old battery. A small copper tube is placed in the narrow neck, and a rod made of a metal alloy is inserted in the copper tube. When filled with hydrochloric acid, it produces an electric current. The vase was, it seems, a primitive galvanic cell battery. Count Volta is credited with having invented the electric cell 2,500 years later. Was the secret of electricity revealed to man thousands of years ago? Is it possible that this planet Earth has been visited by travelers from outer space? Did they wander through the throbbing light years of the universe in search of other life and find it here...
1: Welcome to the Impossible Archive. I'm Bill Black. My co-host is Eddie Guiemont. And we are historians who like to grapple with the weird. Eddie is an assistant professor at Bristol Community College. I'm a high school teacher in Houston and an editor at Contingent Magazine. In this episode, we're talking about ancient astronauts, the pseudo-historical theory popularized by the Swiss author Erich von Däniken in his 1968 book, Chariots of the Gods. For our main text, we'll be using the 1973 TV special In Search of Ancient Astronauts, which introduced many Americans to Von Daniken's theory that extraterrestrials visited the Earth long ago and interacted with ancient peoples and are responsible for all sorts of... Uh, archaeological artifacts we'll also touch on another TV special from 1976 titled Mysteries of the Gods and starring William Shatner as its host and uh, both of these TV specials are on YouTube you can find the links and some other links in the show notes we are on Twitter at arcimpossible. that's A-R-C Impossible our music is by Venus Flytrash. Enjoy the show.
2: Did you get a haircut? I did, yeah. A a couple, like I think since we last talked, maybe two haircuts, but I'm kind of overdue for another one, especially, I think, last two haircuts I've gotten, they didn't do too good a job in the beard part, so... I got to, well, actually I was going to say I have to find some new barbers, but especially now that I'm in a new city, you definitely have to find new barbers. So
1: <laughs> I'm usually lazy and don't pay extra for the beard trim. Um, and it's about a 50, 50 chance that I actually then give it a decent trimming once I get home. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but of course you have a, you have a bushier, you know, yeah, it's, you know.
2: I figure if you're, if I'm going to go in for the haircut, I'm just going to go in for the full experience. So, you know, it's. <laughs> my way of uh treating myself i will say i think the best barber i've ever encountered in this greek place in west hartford in connecticut so i don't know what it is about that but it's a bunch of older greek guys who are just uh very good at it <laughs> do they do the the hot towel treatment? oh yeah they, they do the full thing. Uh, <laughs> They had uh, the last time I was there, which was a couple of years ago now, just like they had, you know, just to let you know, their Greek they had little like bust of Aristotle sitting on the uh like counter. And we got into a talk about like uh it, uh Varis Yarifakis or Yaris Varophakis, the uh like the finance minister of Greece during the whole uh like uh I guess what was then the Grexit negotiations before mm-hmm. that kind of gave way to Brexit. But yeah, so to Happened to get this big talk with like Greek economic policy with the book. So <laughs> definitely haven't had that experience again. But uh, yeah, I was, now I'm trying, I now I can't even remember the name of the barber shop, but if you look up Greek barber in West Hartford, I'm sure it'll come up. Not too many. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. The uh, And yeah, I guess, because I'm trying to think now, of course, the last episode we posted was in December, though it'd been a, a little bit,
2: Longer than that since we actually talked. Um, yeah, maybe October or November. Yeah, last we just... talked was right after the Megalodon article came <clears> out. So yeah, maybe that was October. So yeah, it's yeah. been a while. I I got a nasty cold
1: in November that knocked me out for about two weeks, um, and I, I you know all the tests I took said it was not COVID, but I, I certainly. Took a long time to really get back and swinging, Um, and school year, you know, was basically playing catch up. um, Yeah. So finally, (laughs) spring break. So I figured. Um, So lots of things have changed for us. You are in a new place. You, you're where? Where do you live now?
2: Fall River, Massachusetts. So yeah, it's a new, not just new, moving over two or three state lines. You drive through. Rhode Island also so yeah, it's like like uh I didn't get sick but yeah like we had the move uh I hurt my knee so that was uh put a big thing on me for a while uh yeah just the move in general it was a big energy but uh yeah so it's been a big change for me too and uh, a lot of time but yeah now it's now it's almost the end of spring break sadly but uh we're in a new place new job uh yeah so I'm enjoying it so far but well,
1: when did you start working at, at Bristol? Uh,
2: that's, I mean, yes, I did start working at back in August, but just now I'm actually teaching on campus. It does feel like mm-hmm. kind of like a new job within the new job. It is funny how that kind of just does put a new spin on things.
1: Was it the, the fall semester you were still online?
2: Was yeah. Yeah. So it was fully online. Now it's one's class in person starting this upcoming fall. We're going to be doing at least two classes in person. So I think they're going to be slowly just trying to transition stuff back uh, more and more in person.
1: Do you have to do, you know, I, I, I'm at a high school and I think, you know, they did kind of a more of a, a harder switch from online to now it's all in person. Um, are, are you having to teach hybrid at all? Or are you having to teach people who, like, because uh, a lot of what I had to do last year was be teaching students who are in the physical classroom, but also have my laptop up and be talking to kids on Zoom at the same time.
2: And like, you know, uh, I haven't had to do that, but we do have our hybrid format means that there has to be an in-person component, but also half or more of the class has to be through online. So trying to figure out exactly how to do that's kind of a difficult thing. So I mean, we basically have one in-person class and then just like online assignments but yeah just the whole idea of okay you can have like one in-person class but then you know over half of the course has to be online that's it's not the best way to Mm. juggle things I think but yeah but it's it's continuing and I think uh, there's going to be more just like fully online or fully in-person stuff and the fall from what I understand. So I think just having that kind of division, hopefully it'll be uh, an easier one.
1: So for this episode, we watched, uh, what year did it come out? 1973? Yes. In Search of Ancient Astronauts. Which I guess, obviously this doesn't start the ancient alien thing, but I, I, I do gather that this really popularized it for a large audience ahead than had ever been exposed to it before, is that fair?
2: Yeah, it's, there was uh, the book *Chariots of the Gods* is published in 1968. It's then turned into a uh, 19 it's adapted into a 1970 German, I, I guess, a TV movie. I'm, I don't know quite if it was a cinematic release or a TV movie. And then that German version then gets basically adapted into an English re-release for uh, uh, In Search of Ancient Astronauts starring uh uh The Twilight Zones uh uh Rod Serling I almost said Rod Stewart or Rod Serling
1: <laughs> Yeah Rod Serling with his Sterling voice um, yeah. is is our narrator and yeah I I'm I'm assuming that a lot of the f- just like raw footage we see like flying over the Nazca lines you know, the uh, uh, Stonehenge. I'm assuming a lot of that is probably just by the German film crew. I think um, yeah,
2: most of the footage is from the German one. And so I assume there's at least some new footage of this, but I think most of it is just a recycled. Uh, and, you know, some like, I think a lot of it's recycled also for uh, the mysteries of the gods. There's definitely some repeat shots uh, mm-hmm. in that one also. And that
1: one was an adaptation of a German uh, yes, documentary, yeah. too, I noticed. Um, based also on,
2: based on Von Daniken's...
1: Based on his second book? Uh,
2: I think, yeah. Yeah, anyway. And, okay. Early on
1: in in Search of Ancient Astronauts, it introduces Eric McDonaghan as a German professor uh, <laughs> possessed of the mind of a scientist and the imagination of a romantic. Um I don't
2: see anywhere that this is actually true. Was he a professor or in? No, he was not a prof. Yeah, that caught me. It's like it was a very generous uh, interpretation of what being a professor is. But it's funny because he professed uh, things, I suppose. He, yeah, he definitely prof- Yeah, but it is funny because I noticed. So, uh, they bring up the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, Uh, You know, or or at some point in this also and talking about, I know the electrical properties and all this, but there's uh, some, you know, transcript when uh, George Lucas and uh, Spielberg are talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark and the character who becomes Belloc in uh, uh, the finished movie. The original version of him, Lucas describes him as being based on, quote, Professor Von Daniken. So not only is Von Daniken kind of the basis for that character, but, you know, Lucas calling him Professor it makes me think he probably watched this TV thing and kind of got the idea from that. You can see how, you know, the Ark of the Covenant having all those special powers kind of comes out of this also. I,
1: I wrote down that note when they start talking about the, the Ark of the Covenant, almost making it sound like it's some sort of nuclear you know, energy device. Um, uh, I, I maybe wonder if any of them had had seen this before they made Raiders of the Lost Ark. And that would seem to confirm it. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Which I guess it's just also worth thinking, like, this would have aired, right, on one of three TV networks. You know, this w- would have had a lot more eyeballs than sort of your typical... Episode of Ancient Aliens on the History Channel. Yes, yeah. And this has a certain yeah, toss, means- You have Rod Serling. You have, you know, a, a interview with uh, Werner von Braun, um, which the kind of surprised Carl me. Carl Sagan's on there, <laughs> um, as well as Harold Klein, who was kind of the head of the exobiology uh, part of NASA. Um, Harold Klein is he's one of the NASA scientists who's interviewed. And he was in charge of figuring out what things to put on uh the Viking mission to Mars to uh test whether or not there was life on there um which that would have been a couple of years let's see the Viking76 uh, that's when
2: it's that's when it land or either yeah either it's launch or lands because it's timed around the bicentennial so I think it's going to be launched in '76. But so probably the most press
1: that Klein ever had was, you know, um, when the Viking comes back and they're having to look at the soil and figure figure out if there's any sign of biological activity. Um, and it, you know, uh, he he got a lot of press then. But I was surprised that. Um, they got as much cooperation with NASA as they did and they even acknowledge at the end in the in credits the cooperation of the NASA Ames Research Center as well as the Jet Propulsion Lab um, and UNESCO which yeah. know, maybe UNESCO maybe some of the f- footage
2: we see is actually that wouldn't surprise me but yeah watching both of these did make me wonder how many people at nasa in the 70s were into ufos like it just seems like there's a lot of people at nasa just willing to talk about like well you know maybe it's true or you know stuff like i feel like today i think there would have been a much more guarded uh you know pr attitude but i guess it also speaks just kind of the general culture of the 70s of you know just this being so big in the zeitgeist
1: Yeah, you you definitely like. I don't, I would think it'd be hard to get a NASA scientist degree to be on the History Channel show now. Yeah. (laughs) Um, It didn't have the same kind of taint on it then that it does now. I guess it just hadn't, you know, if they could have looked in the crystal ball and seen (laughs) sort of how it was going to morph into this pretty influential conspiracy theory, mythology. Um, you know, they might not have been wanting to be part of that, but as it was, I guess it wasn't that different from what they. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing a lot of these NASA guys were had grown up on sci-fi pulp
2: magazines and. Um... Well, it's just funny because uh, I know uh, what's uh, Carl Sagan in Cosmos. He talks about you know being inspired by reading uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs and all of that. And actually I have the book up here that, you know, he co-wrote with, uh, uh, Yosef Shlovsky, uh, I guess it's intelligent life in the universe, which came out, I think two years before chariots of the gods, uh, but in it, there's a chapter in it where Carl Sagan is talking about, you know, are these you no know, ancient Mesopotamian gods actually aliens. So like Carl Sagan, though he's kind of critical in it, in this and later on in life, I mean, he was writing about ancient aliens years before Von Daniken was. And I think it just goes to show that there mm. is that kind of uh, 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 esoteric or willingness to believe in esoteric ideas uh, in the 60s and early 70s that in, I think probably even by the late 70s, there would not be. And I mean, especially if you look at, you know, by the late 70s, Uh, contact or or uh cosmos is coming out and sagan is definitely turning uh much more towards the uh, the skeptical empiricist view there
1: yeah i mean it it's a very bizarre ending of the in search of ancient astronauts where you have sagan looking very young um calling the ancient astronaut theory um he says a kind of scientific justification of theological belief, which people would rather believe in any case, it's kind of a modern dress for old time religion. Uh, And then he says, you can't exclude the possibility, but there's not a smidgen of evidence that is compelling. And then there's like a hard cut to one of, I forget what, what, you know, painting or ruin it is. And it's got this very mysterious music playing. And then we go back to the, the cargo cult that we start off with. And it, uh, it's, it, kind of oddly undermines this doubt that he's just put out there and even just his willingness to appear in it kind of undermines his uh you know like he obviously thinks it's worth engaging in some way
2: so but- the cargo cult element also made me think it's just like they they go out of your their way to let you know that the ancient astronauts were light-skinned like the number of times they go the visitors who are light skinned coming from space and like it's repeated so often. It's just, but again, that, that's in the Von Daniken book also, you know, it's not in, I mean, I think it comes up in chariots of gods. One of his sequels though, he talks about how like the white people of the world are like the end product of the aliens, genetic interference and that the other races are the less advanced versions coming up to know whites. And so it is, I mean, it's, I think, uh, very evident from our point of view, but even in the 70s, I think just the emphasis on just ancient aliens are light-skinned people. And that's just, uh, it really struck me. But it also struck me that, you no, know, it really is just comparable to all these other historical or pseudo-historical theories that have been before. Uh, and especially with my work, when they bring up uh, Zimbabwe, or as he pronounces it, Zimbabwe. But he's just, you know, saying, could these, you know, ancient, you know, these like simple African Bushmen have built, you know, this amazing building or could it have been aliens from the stuff star- You just replace aliens with, you know, Israelites or, you know, Egyptians or, you know, any number of other things. That's exactly the same theories that have been cycling around, you know, for centuries. And obviously, of course, it was the Africans ancestors who built it, too. So it really did strike me just, you know, this is really strong evidence of just how the ancient astronaut stuff is a direct continuation of these, you know, Victorian era, you know, foreign builders and, you know, lost races and all this stuff.
1: So what used to have been, would have been the lost tribes of Israel or the Atlanteans or something like that, is are now these, you know, beings from from the skies, I, I actually, that quote really did take me the one uh, in Zimbabwe. Uh, the Rod Serling's quote is, he says, "What masons trimmed and piled these stones with such astonishing perfection? Um, of course, some might take that and, and actually probably take the mason part even more literally. Yeah, <laughs> <exactly>. <laughs> Were they the ancestors of bushmen whose straw huts surround the ruins? or members of a visiting group of master builders. So there is, I I think this idea that, well, the people that we see here, surely they couldn't have anything to do with this or their ancestors. So it had to have been from outside, which, um, and I wouldn't really know the answer to the question of why is it that the descendants of the people who build these great cities, you know, are are living in a, a different kind of way, uh, it, except to, I just know in general that, you know, time isn't linear in that way and that there's political, you know, uh, uh, turmoil. And we know that, I know that Native Americans, by the time of the Columbian Exchange, were were living in, like, less dense and less urban ways, at least in North America, than they had been, say, around 1,000. Um, something like Cahokia had collapsed um, just recently when the Europeans showed up, um, but yeah, what, what would you say? What, what sort of history are they erasing when they, when they say that, uh, these Bushmen and or couldn't have had anything to do with the masonry?
2: Well, it's, I mean, one of the reasons why the, uh, state system in central Africa Collapsed was because of uh, environmental damage and just general environmental change. Like, like the city itself of uh, Zimbabwe is abandoned. It's believed because the water source uh, essentially becomes no longer as available, and so uh, they have to, uh, you know, relocate to other population centers. And it's one of the you know ironies that this happens very shortly before. Uh, europeans arrive it also shows that the very earliest europeans you know who reached southeast africa when they talked with the natives they had you know they just assumed okay yeah they the native people say that you know they built this city they abandoned it recently okay that's fine so they did take that at face value and it's actually uh uh arab merchants who then come up with the idea that you know great zimbabwe had been built by uh uh, King Solomon in the ancient past, because Solomon, a major figure in Islam as well, and so by the Muslims, uh, you know, saying that their 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 ancestor, so to speak, had mm-hmm. built this city, it then gave justification for the Arab traders, you know, as part of the Swahili coast network, you know, to kind of move in and justify their new political dominance after you know, the native state had collapsed, uh, but. Uh, I mean, in addition, also, you know, uh, he, I think he specifically talks. I know like thousands of years of you know this wall, or thousands talks about thousands of years. It's not that old. It's, it's I think most uh, uh, historians would agree that's really around the 11th century when uh, uh, Great Zimbabwe is constructed and you know, probably abandoned in uh, let's say late. Fifteenth, if I'm remembering right, so mm-hmm. it's less than a thousand years old. Had only been around for a few hundred years uh, before it's abandoned, and so. But again, you know, there's this sense it has to be, you know, truly ancient uh, uh, to fit in with kind of the more esoteric views of history.
1: Yeah, there's definitely a flattening,
2: uh,
1: a sort of um, kind of anachronistic ancientness where, you know, you have ancient Egypt, which is i mean how many thousands of years ago were the were the pyramids erected and they'll they'll also bring in early modern european christian art um yeah and then the the mayans which that was only what in the 900s AD. and yeah. like that um then easter island which so my understanding is that uh, the polynesian seafarers didn't get out there until really within the last millennium, um, you know, so that those uh, heads on Easter Island haven't really been there that long either. Um, so it's like, at what point, like, how many different places are these aliens supposed to have gotten to and, and how many times did they visit? Um, it can get a little, you know, they, they, they kind of want to posit it as just there's this one ancient time when they came. Um, I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit more about Donegan. So he wasn't a professor. He worked at a... <laughs> uh, he Am I right that he kind of just wrote this first book kind of on the side while he was working
2: at a hotel? He was, he was a hotel. I think this was his second or third hotel job because he was uh, involved in some kind of shady uh, dealing. I think either it was tax evasion or just outright theft. But uh, to hear him talk about it, he came up with the idea of uh, it would become chariots of the gods, and he was touring Egypt, uh, I think, because he was trying to get away from uh, uh, the law. So mm-hmm. he goes to Egypt, uh, he sees the pyramids, and I think he says he either has a dream or a psychic vision, which, of course, uh, you have to tie in all the other stuff as well of uh Martians and flying saucers building the pyramids. And so that's where he says he got the inspiration for chariots of the gods from, which I think also you know goes to show that uh, you know the origin of this idea is this guy, this European, going to Africa and coming up with the idea of you know these monuments couldn't possibly have been built by the locals, and I think it's you know it shows that this really is just tied in with that kind of colonial idea. The other thing is that the publisher of chariots of the gods when it's first published in german is a former publisher of the official nazi party newspaper uh from the 1930s and so again there's a very direct connection to kind of the <laughs> uh particular racial views we can say coming out of uh these works and you don't tend to hear about the nazi connection as much but uh i think he was at the i forget the name of the publisher but he was, I think, put on trial at Nuremberg and acquitted, but he was uh, you know, put on trial for war crimes by the Allies at the end of World War II. And uh, a couple of decades later, he's putting out chariots of the gods. Uh,
1: Yeah, looks like his book was pretty much had to be rewritten or almost ghostwritten uh, by a man named Uts Uterman. Yes, yeah. Um, and he was the one who had written for the Frikeshire uh, Beobachter which was the Nazi paper so yeah so that's uh, that is interesting I, I if I'm trying to think I guess the only the only thing that's not done by white people or the only thing that is done by white people that they attribute to aliens I guess is Stonehenge though that's almost a uh, an exception that proves the rule, and and that they really hype up that this was the druids. Uh, it was you know pre-Christian pagan. So, so how white were they really? I mean, is is almost what they're they're mm-hmm. saying? Because um, it's it's definitely not going to be. It's not going to be the the Parthenon or the yeah. <laughs> uh, Acropolis or something like that.
2: Although, as I understand, I think like. Hindu nationalists now are claiming that ancient Indians went to Europe and built all these uh, uh, like sites in Europe. So in India, I guess there is this kind of sense that, like, you know, the Colosseum was actually, you know, like a Hindu temple or something oh, like wow. that. Uh,
1: you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, as a as an editor at Contingent Magazine, we do just occasionally get these weird pitches from, they're like Hindu nationalists who are pitching us these like pseudo-historical articles. Um, Like one is that the Taj Mahal was actually built by Hindus hundreds of years before it's supposed to have been built by uh, Shah Jahan. Yeah, just an attempt to sort of de-Islamicize all of Indian history. I don't know. I imagine if if someone isn't doing it, someone does need to be researching Hindu nationalist pseudo history. Um, it'd be interesting to see in what ways it's borrowing or lifting ideas from kind of Western pseudo histories or, you know, are they, are they borrowing ideas from Von Doneken or other, other older things? The yeah, well, Yeah.
2: Not only the, theosophists obviously looking a lot into Indian history, but Vandana can too. Like, I don't think, I don't remember if it comes up in this, but you know, in chariots, of the gods, they have him talking about, you know, the, uh, was it the Vedas and, uh, Hindu religion and, you know, talking about, you know, trying to interpret all the descriptions of flying machines, you know, like, uh, wars with the gods as being, you know, descriptions of ancient nuclear war and, you know, uh, UFOs and things like that. So that has been like Hindu religious texts have been a big mainstay of the whole ancient alien concept, really from you know the the sixties when it kind of takes off as a subgenre.
1: Well I would imagine that Venn diagram of you know people interested in extraterrestrials in the sixties and people who are interested in you know Hinduism and you know, l- looking towards the Orient, you know, dabbling in yoga, and, you know, I, you know, I would imagine that there are a lot of people in the overlapping part of those two circles. The, uh, I, I am, I was reminded, like, in the discussion of Quetzalcoatl, um, who I do believe, I, I think it's accurate that in Aztec mythology he's described as a kind of a white, or light-skinned man, and he, he departs, and then pledges to return. Um, I remember a Mormon friend of mine in high school mentioning the Quetzalcoatl myth as evidence that corroborated the the Mormon account of Jesus visiting the Americas and talking to the Native Americans. Um, that because you know there's the you know the, there's the Mormon teaching that Jesus after he's resurrected, um, that he goes to the Americas and talks to Native Americans there and then, you know, ascends to heaven. And so, yeah, a Mormon friend of mine said that this Quetzalcoatl myth was just, you know, a kind of a garbling of, of the true story of Jesus. I don't know. I'll say this. I was surprised in general of just how flimsy this 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 thing was I really thought it was gonna be more convincing like I I thought I was going to watch it and be like oh man I have to actually need to look into that and, and see what the I'm sure there is a, a good explanation for this but I'll be darned if it, it didn't just sort of string a whole bunch of non- sequiturs uh, it just would it would just a lot of it was how could they have built this um, yeah. <laughs> how could they have figured that out how could they have you know, how could the Mayans have figured out when the eclipses are? How
2: could they have built this pyramid? Who knows? There, there was one part when they're talking about the Mayans. I'm, I forget exactly what it was. Something like the Mayans had no like knowledge of the planets, but they calculated how the planets, you know, could go overhead. How could that be? And they're just thinking, well, it seems like it indicates they did know about the planets. That's the <laughs> <Yeah>. case. But... <laughs> And
1: they say there's a, a well that looks like it could have been a crater made
2: by a crashed space. Yeah, the cenote pit. Yeah, it's, <laughs> and it's just funny because like, I think the way he described it, he talks about like cenote is like it's proper, like that is the name of this spot. But from what I understand, a cenote is just a general term for these pits that are fairly, mm. con. I think it's from limestone, I think it's just water kind of a, uh, over millions of years, dissolving just this, uh, you know, pit down through the limestone from what I understand. But yeah, just (laughs) seeing that, uh, who knew that uh, this pit was a rocket uh, exhaust? (laughs) I mean, I I guess the question,
1: their main evidence seems to be, there's lots of myths throughout human history where People re- report someone, uh, some superior being coming from the skies, coming down, helping us, going back up. Um, I I w- would say, well, perhaps there is something kind of evolutionarily consistent about humans that make us look to the sky. You know, we, for various reasons, we've been able to find a lot of meaning in the stars, um, prehistoric humans could could figure out by looking at the stars in the night sky the the passage of the years and they were able to kind of time their their movements according to where the stars were in the sky and um i don't know it doesn't seem to me to require this sort of drastic explanation that humans throughout the world have attributed meaning to some being from the sky that would. And if anything, it might make us wonder if the modern extraterrestrial stories are actually just a continuation of this human impulse to look to the sky rather than saying, Oh, it was aliens all along. (laughs)
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um,
2: Well, and it's just funny too, because, you know, talking about how flimsy all this stuff, like pretty much everything they bring up in this, uh, you know, like the Piri Reis map, the uh, the you know the Baghdad Battery the Ark of the Covenant Great Zimbabwe I mean pretty much all this you know if you read a Graham Hancock book those bring up the exact same evidence and say oh was this Atlantis or you know you'll hear you know applied to Lemuria or Mu or you know the Freemasons or any... so it's just like this is just the the stock stuff where, you know you just list all of this basically just a list of like well isn't it cool that you know this stuff happened in the ancient world and then you know choose your own esoteric explanation for it it's just you know it's just there's no there's no actual explanation there it's just uh, let's link all these interesting topics together through you know this other lens that you know you can just change out interchangeably
1: yeah and they you know they obviously they throw a lot into this hour long special and they had this music tying it all together but if you stop and actually separate it all out you'd be like well there's not actually a lot that is uh being repeated like there'll be one place where the, oh these uh there's these cave paintings in Australia where the beings have these big eyes and kind of look like aliens which I mean you know I th- I think again there's something probably very human about wanting to emphasize the eyes um uh, when, when you're drawing a face and even now you know you think of cartoon characters have big eyes because you look in someone's eyes when you talk to them and that just kind of conveys a lot and then they'll show this being over this art over here where it looks like someone is wearing an astronaut outfit and over here it looks like someone has a spacecraft and it gives you the idea by juxtaposing all of these that in all these places they're drawing big-eyed greys with spacesuits and spacecraft, it's actually no, no, none of those places do you see all those things put together.
2: And exactly.
1: (laughs) uh, You know, why would they be wearing spacesuits on earth? Uh, uh, Like uh, in the William Shatner one, they show someone in in, uh, somewhere in the world, I think maybe New Guinea, who during some ceremonial event they they wear this big costume that kind of kind of looks like an astronaut's outfit and the way they move is kind of stiff uh kind of like how an astronaut moves but if the idea that is that they're this is an homage to how the aliens acted when they came here why would the aliens have been bouncing around like they're on the moon (laughs) you know i uh,
2: when i saw that i was like well the astronauts move like that in the moon because of the moon's gravity so i guess that means the aliens must come from a planet with much higher gravity than earth, but But then wouldn't that make them be really squat? Yeah. I don't like, why would any being like, it's
1: like Superman logic. It's like, uh, (laughs) uh, I don't really think gravity works that way. Um, but yeah, the, um, what was I going to say? Oh, or, or they'll show there's this, this, uh, 19-foot giant in the Sahara Desert. Do you know what specifically I'm referring to there?
2: Yeah, it's, uh, what's, it's referred to as the, the great Martian god of the Sahara, I think. Uh, and then that's and then they Trump just superimposed Trump-
1: this drawing of an astronaut on him. <laughs> well, well, look, it's the astronaut. Well, that's not the astronaut. That's just a drawing that y'all put on <laughs> the TV <Yep. laughs> and just superimposed it. Yeah. So it's a lot of looking for patterns and that I'm not sure are really there. And a lot of these things also, they look weird if you only look at that one example of it. So like, um, there's the Mayan carving of the man who kind of looks like, if you don't know anything about it, that he's like sitting in some sort of capsule in a spacecraft. But then if you compare it to other Mayan casket art, um, it's that's what it is it's art on someone's coffin that uh, you'll see that what what this film is trying to tell you is like a rocket or exhaust tombs is actually the Mayan tree of life which is rooted in the underworld and then reaches to the to the heavens he is ascending to you know the afterlife it doesn't look, look anything like a spacecraft unless you know you only look at that one or if you only look at that one painting where Jesus is being crucified, and you see these two beings that sort of look like they're people in little spaceships. But then you compare it to dozens of different crucifixion paintings from the Byzantine era or the medieval European era. It's actually just the, the sun and the moon. And just they, they were personified in different ways, and sometimes they're just sort of sun and moon with faces. Sometimes they're like people in the moon and the sun, and it's pretty obvious what it is when you look at more examples than just the one that they always pick out
2: yeah and i guess uh connecting with that too i was just thinking that uh uh you know, them talking about the Piri reyes map this ottoman map uh by an admiral that you know is supposed to show you know this complex you know depiction of the world and you know, obviously only uh you no know, aliens could have you know given this you know advanced knowledge to the ottomans but really you know it's a reflection of uh you know just how detailed the ottomans uh uh you know were in cartography and you know getting knowledge from the europeans and incorporating a lot of the latest you know european uh mapping of the new world so you know that's not as exciting to talk about instead you have to talk about how it's you know oh a satellite image i guess got beamed down to constantinople or something and again like this is like the ottomans in the 16th century they would have you know probably left a record of like yeah an alien landed in you know constantinople and you know went to the Hagia Sophia and you know handed the sultan this you know satellite map but uh yeah, it's just really funny. The other thing I liked is talking about how, you know, Egyptian mummification was obviously the, you know, attempt to replicate, uh, you know, alien longevity technology and just thinking, oh, that's the plot from Stargate. <laughs> oh. so I guess they watch.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was, I was trying to think about what, uh, like, what other sort of sci-fi plot lines have been influenced by this. Obviously, the the fourth Indiana Jones movie probably has the heaviest influence, uh, where it really goes down the ancient aliens uh, rabbit hole with the crystal skulls and um, their whole archive of all the the treasures that that were produced by their beneficial rule back in ancient times. Um, But I suppose also, well, there's that movie Prometheus. I don't know if you ever saw that. Ridley Scott's. Alien prequel,
2: Alien where? versus Predator, where there's the uh giant uh Predator temple in Antarctica that has like Aztec and Egyptian stuff all combined in it. uh and, Although, again, as we, as we learned from this documentary, the aliens land at the equator because the uh, magnetic fields at the poles disrupts their navigation. So, <laughs> uh which is why they landed in Egypt because it's near the equator, obviously. So. I guess all those stories about aliens in Antarctica are not accurate because, uh, as Rod Sterling explained, it just doesn't fit in with, you know, the aliens can navigate across, you know, thousands of light years, but a planet's, you know, north and south pole, uh, it's too much for their equipment.
1: It does seem like there's sort of two strains of this theory. There's one that's almost like a, it's almost like the deist, clockmaker god, uh, where, they came at some point and just sort of seeded life and then departed, which honestly, I think sort of von Braun and some of the other scientists, they seem to be more referring to that possibility. I guess that's the the panspermia mm-hmm. hypothesis, um, even if it's more of a some meteorite with bacteria on it hits the earth, and then the bacteria, you know, then populate the earth, which is not as sexy as, you know, (laughs) uh, a bunch of greys coming over and cooking up some some DNA cocktails. Um, (laughs) So there's that, and then there's the, I would think, probably the more dangerous theory and, and more kind of racist one where it's that they came and they were sort of, these Promethean overlords who gifted these primitive people with, you know, uh, uh, technologies and enabled a sort of civiliz- civilizational leap, rather than just a some sort of uh, genetic leap. Um, well, I guess they're. In, there's the in between theory that they came at some point. I guess this is more the 2001 Space Odyssey theory that they came at uh, life was already here, but then they sort of enabled the leap from non
2: human ape to Homo sapiens, which I think that that's, yeah. I think that's brought up in the mysteries of the god. Uh, and actually, uh, in Sagan, in his intelligent life in the universe book, he kind of talks about that a bit also. As no you know, uh, this supposed period of uh, you know ancient Mesopotamia when all of a sudden there's a you know, very rapid you know, development of urbanization. So he points to that uh, in that book also. Uh, it is interesting that you know speaking of the Shatner document, so uh, around this time it would have been 1974 there's an episode of Star Trek: the Animated series that goes full on into ancient astronauts. It's called, uh, what's it called? I have a, uh, how sharper than a serpent's tooth. Uh, so it's notable. It's, it's, you no, know, they meet Kukulcan, uh, the, I guess the Aztec, uh, God and learn about how, and I, you know, he came to earth and, you know, contributed to all these ancient civilizations, but it's notable because it's the episode itself is written by a native American. And in some of his interviews, he specifically says that, A, the Star Trek producers really wanted him to write like an ancient alien story using like some kind of Native American myth. But he also says he specifically made it so that, uh, you know, Kukulkan came to all of the like regions of Earth. So it wouldn't just be, you know, him coming to you know, Africa or the Native Americans. So that was his attempt to kind of decolonize the ancient alien idea. And notably, also that episode—it's the only episode of you know, either the original Star Trek or the animated series to win an Emmy. So again, it goes to show how there is this kind of cultural resonance around this time for ancient astronauts.
1: How knowledgeable are you of uh, like Marvel Comics? I'm thinking about Thor. It was the was the original conceit that what humans thought
2: were gods were actually alien beings? I think or? so. I know Jack Kirby who did a lot of Marvel and uh uh then DC stuff uh around this time. Uh like I think his new god stuff in uh, for DC was specifically meant to be like the continuation of Thor. Also you know, he was very influenced by like uh ancient aliens, and I think even some of his artwork kind of reflects like some of the stereotypical like ancient alien iconography. So Definitely Jack Kirby, who's active in Marvel and DC in the 70s and 80s, is big into the ancient alien idea. And is that like uh, the Eternals? That's very much I a... think yeah, he did the Eternals. Uh, I think that was, I, don't, I can't, re- I, I should have looked, but I don't know if that's be- He went, he was originally at Marvel. I think he goes to DC. I think he comes back to Marvel afterwards, I believe. But I don't, so I, don't I think the Eternals is before. He goes to DC, I think. But
1: um, looking, they they were created by Jack Kirby in 1976. Okay. Um. The, oh, this almost sounds theosophist. Uh, the Eternals are an offshoot of humanity known as Homo Immortalis, created one years one million years ago by the enigmatic alien Celestials to defend Earth with their superhuman powers and abilities. Their primary adversaries are the deviants who share a similar (laughs) origin and pose a regular threat to humanity. I'm just reading from the Wikipedia article here on the Eternals. So, there's these genetically engineered superhumans engineered by the aliens but the aliens also engineered kind of these supervillains who then fight our superheroes.
2: Um, Gotta love just the enemies, the deviants. (laughs) (laughs) but i I checked yeah i forgot also that uh in 1958 so this is well before he starts working at marvel that jack kirby illustrated a comic called the face on mars which is about you know explorers from earth going to mars and finding a giant face left by aliens there which is you know about two decades before you know the quote actual face on mars is uh uncovered so now I'm curious if Jack Kirby had anything to say when kind of the more popular face on Mars conspiracy kind of started to explode. Uh, and actually, you have know, to tie it in the face on Mars that you know we all know and love. That's really spread in the early 80s by a guy named Richard C. Hoagland, who was a big Star Trek fan. And he's actually the guy who led the fan uh, uh, campaign to name the first space shuttle, the Enterprise. So again, if you have some Star Trek, <laughs> crossing over with, you know, ancient aliens slash UFO conspiracy stuff. If you go into any of the conspiracy stuff, it, it's not just a face on Mars, but there's pyramids, you know, there too. There's like a structure called the Citadel that there's a whole map of the area that conspiracy theorists have. So it is, you know, pyramids, you know, the idea of ancient aliens building pyramids on Mars, just not on earth are tied in there. And I think Doctor Who also had like a 1970s thing about uh, uh, the ancient Egyptians actually being gods and finding you know, another pyramid on Mars where they're living. So as stuff was uh, definitely circulating uh, science fiction shows in the 70s. Yeah,
1: a question I have is what is the different between ancient alien theory and the sort of thing that... Jacques Vallée does because I do think there's a difference but I'm not sure I can explain what the difference is um, because the similarity is that, you know, Vallée looks to older myths uh, and he's finding kind of common themes and things that are kind of, there seems to be some thing that that is impinging on Human consciousness impinging on our reality at different points in human history, uh, and not just him, but uh, others who subscribe to the more psychosocial hypothesis, Carl Jung school, where they're they're looking towards older folklore about fairies and gods and angels, and in seeing that as in having some sort of continuity with stories about aliens, right? And Donnegan is doing that too, though I, I I do think there's a difference. I'm not sure I can explain what it is. What do you think?
2: I feel like like kind of like the classical ancient alien thing is almost like a secular, it's like it's a much more materialist thing of saying gods don't exist. It's all, you know, if it's not humans, it's you no know, human-like beings who've evolved, Like I guess implicitly without gods of their own on other planets and come here. And so I think ancient alien know kind of the core or ancient astronauts i guess and you know, to use the proper metaphor is it's uh almost like uh, say a humoristic you know the way to kind of deconstruct uh ancient myths you know take away the supernatural elements and so mm. i think it's kind of a materialistic way versus i mean you could say ancient astronauts are like the materialistic you know deconstruction and ancient aliens are maybe the more you know foley approach we can make that a, uh just uh discernment although even in uh like one thing i was interested i don't know if you got this far in the shatner one but by the end he's talking about telepathy and interviewing a parapsychologist about you know his attempts to mentally prepare himself for contact from you know aliens and he's interviewing uh uh like an astrologer and connecting nostradamus to aliens. so it's there is this like that's veering more towards kind of the uh more I guess we could say that uh to use the jeb card term the puffed the paranormal unified field theory but yeah, at least I think kind of the more traditional von daniken approach is you know the aliens are flesh and blood therefore gods are flesh and blood you know therefore there's no uh no such thing as you know supernatural it's just you mm. know, a materialist from another planet uh which I think also like there's a lot of like 1960s and seventies like uh soviet you know propaganda that you know implicitly pushes stuff on ancient aliens or atlantis as a way to kind of you know justify that you know religion is false okay that's
1: i i want to follow up with you on that that's that's (laughs) that's the soviet angle but i i I I like i like that distinction about the whether or not it's materialist because yeah the the kind of Jung valet school is more as like yeah we can see similarities between the stories of fairies and angels and stories of aliens and they're not using that to debunk the alien stories but actually to say maybe there's some truth to the angel and fairy stories as well but who, who you know now let's think about in what sense it's true or in what sense something is really happening um, whereas yeah the, the von Daniken approach is like oh these dumb primitive people Saw astronauts and thought they were gods, but you know they are just as silly as these cargo cults. I, mean, I think it's mm-hmm. really important that it's that von Daniken starts with the cargo cults. Um, he kind of uses that as his the overarching metaphor. You know, these primitive people saw who people who we know were actually just a, you know American or Japanese servicemen and they were flying airplanes and we can't explain it they couldn't but we can and their inability to explain it made them resort to superstition and religion and worship thinking that these are just sort of supernatural beings who will bring them good things from the sky with the implication that a similar thing happened when these ancient astronauts and I think it's yeah it's important that they're called ancient astronauts, because that kind of demystifies them. It's like we've got astronauts today. But what if there were astronauts back in the olden days? Well, people would be very confused by that because they would have no frame of reference for it, whereas we do today. So these ancient astronauts who just happen to be from other planets were mistaken for gods.
2: My sense is much like with a lot of the other paranormal stuff, I think modern ancient aliens, modern uh, you know, UFOs, I think. I think the distinction between, you know, UFOs and ancient aliens is kind of blurred a bit whereas I think in the 60s and 70s it was seen as, you know, much more distinct that I know there's at least one prominent ancient alien uh, ad or ancient astronaut I guess we would say advocate from the 70s who, you know, endorsed the whole notion of, you know, ancient visitors but rejected modern UFOs and I think it's more blurred now but I think there is kind of more of the you know spiritual uh you know underpinnings just as you know Bigfoot is you no know, much more spiritual now than he was in the 60s and you know probably a lot of other things also I think it's just we're in an era where uh, uh the materialistic view in the paranormal community I think is much less uh prominent than it was then in all fields
1: uh, What was I going to say? I was surprised by Von Braun's appearance. I was also tickled that he he used the cosmic calendar. Did you catch that? Mm-hmm. Where he said, if, yeah. if all of existence is a, is a year, then humans have only been around for a minute or something like that. Uh, and if we're only talking about the amount of time that we've been producing radio signals, it's only like this fraction of a second. Um, which I thought that the cosmic calendar was. I thought that Sagan came up with that for Cosmos, but this predates that.
2: Maybe Sagan saw this and got it from von.
1: Surely he did watch it. I would. I would. Say. Yeah. Um, you you said that tantalizing thing about the Soviets, but I didn't know if you know much more about that. Well,
2: it's just. I mean, I think it's generally accepted you know, now that there's a lot of. uh uh, not just like soviet influence and kind of like the alternative press in the you know 60s and 70s but you no know, the soviets are funding actual like especially with Atlantis uh, there was like a recurring thing where you know every so often the soviets would claim that you know they had found Atlantis and just stuff so there's a lot of kind of like soviet newspapers made for consumption in the west that you know highlight a lot of these kind of uh you know uh, alternative science ideas both with the intent of you know proving that uh you know religion is false but just generally like providing kind of a uh science critical notions kind of undermine uh uh you know, belief in science and authorities in the west so the idea that you know uh hiv was created by the cia you know spread as a bioweapon against blacks that was a big thing also uh you know promoted by the soviet news sources in the 80s and wow. i know uh more domestically there's a big strain of a uh, like soviet religious studies that was you know trying to prove that you know uh christ had never actually existed not that he wasn't even a god just that he was a completely invented figure with no historical basis and so there's at least a few uh like soviet scholars who put out stuff like that but uh, but I think even I think even that may have been, you know, by the seventies kind of a fringe thing in the Soviet Union, especially under you know, Brezhnev, when this, you know, kind of the last remnants of that kind of you know radical socialist thinking kind of uh, mm-hmm. fades away to more pragmatic views.
1: That does make me think, and and you were hinting at this earlier, that there seems to be different ways, different angles you can take this ancient alien stuff that you can go into a kind of hippy-dippy, supernaturalist angle, even though I don't really think that was von Donneken's, you know, no. intention. <laughs> and then there, I could see this going into sort of new atheist territory. Um, did you ever watch that Zeitgeist movie back in the day? <laughs> you know?
2: I haven't, I'm familiar with it. But yeah, I never watched it, but it is, it does, I do feel like that's like, err text for really. like, a lot of YouTube is just like Zeitgeist. There uh, might be
1: one we, we should uh we should do one on because I would definitely be willing to watch that because it has three parts to it basically, and it's a whole part about the Fed and it's Ron Paul kind of stuff about the Federal Reserve. <laughs> uh, the, the probably the part that's most famous is the 9/11 truther stuff, but it also has this lengthy passage that's basically uh, uh Jesus denialism which is the thing that you were saying where it's not just that Jesus wasn't divine, but that Jesus didn't exist at all. And I can imagine someone being like, oh, well, you know, Jesus was actually, you know, just people saw an alien and thought it was a, a God. And, <laughs> and then they, and then the Pope and got together and they wrote the Bible or, you know, just this kind of, and they hid the, they hid the truth about
2: our space brethren. I don't know. <laughs> Well, uh, I mean, again, if you think of uh, the day the Earth stood still, you know, you have an alien come down to Earth, and you know he's immediately shot in the side by the, uh, you know, the military, and he dies, and he resurrects, and then goes back up into heaven afterwards, and, and he takes the name Carpenter. So it's right.
1: <laughs> oh wow! Wow! Yeah. I didn't think about that. Uh, or Superman, right? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Superman's just a regular. <laughs> Kryptonian, he's not special for, for, for a Kryptonian. Uh, he's not even wearing a, a superhero outfit. That's just the normal Krypton clothes. Um, But he is mistaken by, by the masses as being some sort of supernatural being. Um, I feel like um, I've seen this trope before, but I don't know where it actually comes from. But... Of sort of an intrepid explorer, maybe some posh British man with a with a pith helmet, uh, <laughs> being mistaken for God by jungle savages. Wh- where would I've seen this before?
2: That's a uh, like uh, what's it, King Solomon's Mines? That's there for a bit. Uh, but I think that comes out of like Cortez and you know a lot of the conquistador claims and, mm-hmm. and well Cortez, you know, his whole his whole claim after the fact that he was, you know, believed to be Quetzalcoatl wasn't, or that's what he's kind of like the story that gets told. And yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of just, you know, the great white God returning. And I feel like it gets tied in a lot with these, uh, you know, lost uh, like race narratives or, you know, like ancient explorers built this city. And then, you know, the Victorian British guy shows up and he's white, just like the ancient gods, So he's, you know, going to be our ruler and uh uh that's yeah i think it's uh i think kind of like the big thing that resurrects that is uh the h rider haggard novels uh and not just king solomon's minds but uh uh the novel she that's a big element there too it's, uh the man who would be king is that uh a... yeah
1: that's yep and i'm i'm guessing that probably also influences dune right because it isn't part of the I'm Uh, sure yeah Paul Paul Atreides is kind of takes on the role of messiah that he sort of is attributed to him by the desert natives or sort of coded as Arabs because he's kind of like a Lawrence of Arabia
2: exactly kind
1: of messiah Half Lawrence
2: of Arabia half Muhammad kind of uh. yeah although if if you read all like the like Dune backstory the Fremen they're a mix of a sunni muslims and zen buddhists so that's their origin is that hmm. uh that interesting uh <laughs> historical blend
1: <laughs> the uh i i just have to say that i yesterday i had my first barley wine
2: beer Ooh. and it
1: was bigfoot um <laughs> the uh, sierra nevada
2: brand i thought it was quite good but um i found a bigfoot stout uh, a couple months ago so oh. like yeah it was a someone should collect
1: all the bigfoot <laughs> beers out there i'm sure there's they're multiple. at the
2: international cryptozoology museum in portland maine and they do have us they have a case with a lot of different uh you know cryptid themed beers there